I titled the message this morning, Being Conformed to the Image of Christ. Uh, I, have a, I have an arts background, and so the majority of my experience in art has been within a church context and a church setting. So I've always come across the issues of what it means to have a picture of Jesus Christ in a church, or what does it mean that... Um, Visual art can be used in a church setting. How does that help with worship? And also with the knowledge that throughout many, many centuries, there have been paintings and depictions of Jesus that have been portrayed by many artists over the years. So when I come across a phrase in the book of Romans where it says that we are being conformed to the image of his son. I'm intrigued by that and wonder, what does that mean? What is Paul driving at when he uses that phrase within these verses? And we read a lot of verses prior to coming to this, and which is something that is supposed to be uh, helping us give a context as to what um, Paul is driving at when he uses that phrase, to be conformed to the image of God's son. Now, there are many reasons why, as I said, there's artists that take... Um, or paint the picture of Jesus. And I don't know how many of you are familiar with this image over here. This was a picture called the Head of Christ. It's by an artist by the name of Warner Salmon. And he created a drawing of this picture in the early 20s, but it really didn't become popular until the early 1940s, right around the time when World War I or World War II was starting up. And uh, the publisher of this image thought it would be a great idea to give this image, along with short devotional uh, messages, to the soldiers who are leaving for war as a means in order to comfort the soldiers, to bring hope and inspire them and that kind of thing through the difficulties that they were going to face, facing war. So that was one of the reasons why this uh, picture became so popular, because when all those men came back, uh, this image was pretty much infused within a lot of Protestant denominations. Not, not, not so much within the Catholic realm, but within Protestant churches. This image became very popular and sold millions and millions of copies. It was used on lamps, it was used on mugs, it was just used all over the place. So the intention of what an artist wants to do or portray has many reasons, especially if using a, a picture of Jesus. Sometimes those pictures are meant to prompt uh, devotion or worship, that uh, when you come before uh, an image of Jesus or something like that, you recognize a greatness or a realization, you're struck in awe about who this person Jesus is. Or one of the reasons might be that it's symbolic, that, that they're using a picture of Jesus in order to re represent something, such as portraying him as a key presents his power, or representing him as a shepherd portrays his protection or his guidance, or maybe picturing him as a judge shows that he has authority. Or it might be that people... Uh, create a picture of Jesus because it's something expressive, a way to show that how Jesus shares our emotional life with us, showing him as a man of sorrows or a man of agony that has gone through suffering on our behalf, or of, of joy, that there is delight as he welcomes children into his company. So again, I'm, I was kind of looking at that, at that verse that says, we are being conformed into the image of his son. And just wonder, okay, what's going on there? What, what is that about? So, if you want to go back to where um, we started with looking at the first verses in 
book of Romans, in verse 16. Um, let me read that again. Paul says this, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. So what he's starting off with is, is he's making a comparison. He's taking a now and then type of approach. And what he's comparing is sufferings and glory. Sufferings that, as he writes to his people that um, are receiving his letter, he's saying sufferings that, that we all are sharing. He uses the word us. Suffering is not worth comparing to the glory that is to be revealed to us. Now what I would like us to do this morning is to try to take uh, our tent to make it feel like this verse is really written for us today. And it is. I mean, that is. But I hope that we don't take these verses and just place them in the past and feel like they're not relevant for us right now. But hopefully that as Paul speaks about us and we, that he's talking about all of us. And specifically, he was writing to believers in Rome, prominently Gentiles, but there probably was also some Jewish members within that community. So these verses are written to Christians specifically for us to take into consideration and to be aware of. So what is this thing about suffering and glory? Well, he enters into this comparison, or he continues with this comparison by first introducing a spectator. He personifies creation. In verse 19 it says, For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. Creation, all that God has already made, all that God has already worked and brought forth, that is a focus of what Paul is personifying. Creation. Creation has this eager longing for what? For the revealing of the sons of God. That's us. That's us again. Something that's going to be happening in the future. And using the word revealing twice, one in verse 18 and one in verse 19, he's talking about something that's going to be revealed about us or through us. So creation as a whole is anticipating that, something in the future. But right now, there is suffering. And Paul goes into that aspect about what is suffering, about what is the suffering that he is, that he is going to describe. Well, in verse 20, we read, For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. Paul packs an awful lot in these verses. And it was very hard for me to kind of weed through and distill and try to separate ideas. So bear with me because sometimes it kind of felt like, oh, these are kind of disjointed. But he kind of introduces thoughts before he goes on to another thought or carries up a thought later on. So if it feels like kind of things are jumping around, bear with me and see what I can do here. So, but he's talking about still focusing on creation and the suffering specifically of creation. And he's hearkening back to the time of Genesis when mankind sinned. Adam and Eve were in the garden and they sinned. And it was at that time that God brought a curse onto the earth. 
And so this, these verses in 20 and 22 kind of walk through or kind of reference a little bit of what God cursed back then in the garden. It says, the creation was subjected to futility. That kind of reminds us of the curse that he made on the ground, that the earth is only going to be bearing forth weeds and thorns and thistles. And it says in, uh, in this verse here also that there is bondage to corruption. And there is bond, and there's, uh, I'm sorry, yes, there's bondage to corruption. That also makes us think of, the t- of what he said to the man, that man is going to be um, working the ground in hardship with the sweat of his brow. And it's going to create a lot of effort on his part in order to extract those things that are, are beneficial from, from the creation. And then he says also that creation has been groaning together now in the pains of childbirth. And that is kind of like a reference to the curse that was brought upon women, that now in childbirth your pain will be greatly increased. So, the, so Paul is encompassing a lot of time and a lot of pieces within these verses. Way back to Genesis is where he's taking our thoughts and declaring that the suffering that is experiencing now that he introduced in in verse 18, the suffering that is introduced now is tied to the suffering that was started back then in Genesis. It's ongoing. (coughs) It's ongoing and it's been continuing. And it's something that all of creation is participating in. And it is something that has been a result of God's work. You know, he took his creation. That was the first work that he had. But then man, man sinned, and now, as a consequence, creation is under this bondage that God himself has placed upon the world. But it's not only creation that is suffering. We are part of that creation, certainly. But he also says that we ourselves specifically, as Christians, are suffering. If you look at verse 23, it says, And not only creation but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. So the suffering that we are experiencing specifically as Christians is the fact that because we are Christians, well, the Holy Spirit resides within us. And the Holy Spirit is is the person who prompts us towards good works, also leads us in an understanding of Scripture, also helps us see the, um, the still after effects of what creation displays in terms of God's handiwork, the appreciation that we can have for that. But it's also this groaning inwardly of something that is to come. We have a flavor of it, but we don't have everything yet. It's just not there yet. So it's kind of like in the midst of suffering, there's something good that is ahead of us that we have an inkling of, a slight picture of, only a partial picture, but something much better is coming, and we are longing for that. It's like a child who's going through a hot summer day, and they're given a promise of, yes, but you're going to have some ice cream at the end of the day. And that child is just waiting and anticipating for that ice cream because it's been promised and knows, oh, I'm going to have something much better than the suffering that I'm going through right now. So, not only is their creation groaning, and we're groaning, 
And that's a great word to use, I think, because this is a type of groaning that's not just a superficial kind of groaning. We, we understand that kind of superficial groaning. It's like, oh, I lost the TV remote again. Or, oh, I wish this person in front of me that was driving would go faster. You know, there's groaning in those regards because there's something that's interrupting our pleasure or our activity or something like that. This note is a suffering which is deep, that is personal. It's the kind of suffering that can potentially keep us up at night, that works in the back of our minds. Suffering that we try to allay with other things, that we try to find... Um, momentary relief from, but yet which is a constant in our lives. Something either that's physical or mental or emotional, a trauma that we've experienced, a broken relationship that we've had, a physical disability that we are experiencing, all these kinds of things. There is an effect on us that is like a weight and we are groaning and we are burdened by that kind of of, uh, of suffering that we are experiencing. So it's not a superficial kind of thing that Paul is describing to his people here. He wants them to be able to understand that the breadth of the suffering has been long-standing, the depth of the suffering is personal, but yet there is hope within this. And he turns to the idea of hope in a couple of ways. This hope is what directs us to look to the future and to look to what is called glory and a time to come. Glory and a change that is going to be offered to us and that is going to be realized. It spoke in verse 18, it spoke of the glory to be revealed. Well, in verse 21, it says that uh, creation is anticipating a relief from its bondage at the time when the glory of the children of God will be revealed. So it's not just glory that is going to be something apart from us. It's glory that we are going to participate in. And it's a glory that we are going to be sharing in also. Verse 24, verse 24 um, describes that hope a little bit more thoroughly says, for in this hope we were saved. Not hope that is, now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it in patience. This hope is for something that is not yet seen. As I said with what the Holy Spirit does for us, is, is that we are given glimpses of something much better in the future but we don't have a full picture of that quite yet. We don't have a full understanding of that quite yet. So there's a lot that we do not see at this point. But yet Paul is saying that this is what should be drawing us to hope instead of disappointment or despair. It's like, oh. But part of our groaning can be, when will this come? There's a good kind of like, when is this going to happen I want this to come now. And there's a prayer that we can send up to God saying, Lord, come. You know, we want this deliverance to happen. We want this hope to be fully realized. I have a friend who, um, whenever it's a cloudy day, 
It's his prayer because, you know, the Bible speaks that Christ will come in the clouds and that kind of thing. He looks up at the clouds and he says, okay, Christ, are you coming today? Jesus, please come today. So pretty much any day that's cloudy, he's doing that kind of a prayer. It's like that's the hopeful expectation that he has for uh, a future hope that he's hoping to have realized. So it is difficult for us to maintain hope, I think, because there's so many things about what we suffer that can draw us away from looking at what is to come. And it can focus us here on our problems and be self-absorbed in that instead of looking outward from us. So we need things to help us sustain that hope. And there's a couple of things which are brought out in these verses. And if we look at verse 26, so within our suffering, all of creation is growing, all of us are groaning. So now it says in verse 26, likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. For we do not know what to pray as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. So here is another act that the Holy Spirit within us is involved in. He's interceding for us on our behalf to the Father. And he's interceding according to the will of God. It's not that the the Holy Spirit says, okay, well, this is what Brian wants. God, give Brian what he wants. He says, God, this is what Brian is going through. Give him what he needs according to your will. But it's it's, um, calming to me and encouraging to me that the Spirit does this with groanings, not unlike ours. And so the Spirit works within our hearts and in our lives in the same kind of depth as we are experiencing our sufferings. It's not a superficial type of intercession. It is the Spirit working in the depths of our hearts and in our thinking in order to bring those sufferings before the Father and say, Father, may your will be done within what your children are going through. That gives us assurance. That gives us a grounding in our hope. But it also is um, an assurance because we know that um, as the Spirit is interceding on our behalf, that God is working towards our good. As we see in verse 28, where it says, And we know that those who love God, all all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. So those of us who, it's not a qualification. We as Christians, we have come to believe in Jesus Christ as our Savior. There is a love that we express towards him as our Savior. Love towards God for the work that he has done in order to save us from our sins. We love God for that reason and for many other reasons. And so it's not a qualification that you have to love God in order to receive the good that he works, but it's an assurance that God is working on our behalf. God is working for our good. Even though we can't see fully yet what is to come, which is good, and as we see the the nature and and the depth of our sufferings, which is hard for us to extract us from, we have the assurance both of the Spirit working on our behalf to intercede for us, and also that God is working for our good in those, in those uh, times that we are living through. And again, it emphasizes um, God's purpose. At the end of verse 28, it says, God is working 
all things together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. This is not only just an aspect of a calling to salvation, but it's also a calling for him to work in us and on us for a specific reason, for a specific purpose that he has in mind for us. And that purpose is revealed in verse 29. We're finally getting around to the verse which talks about the image of his son. What is God's purpose? According to his purpose, in verse 29, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, in order that he, Jesus Christ, might be the firstborn among many brothers. Now this verse, in great theological uh, debates in that, uses terms which have been debated about a long time. Predestination, foreknowledge, what does all that have to do? I can't get into all of that. (laughs) That would be way too tangled up for us to try to delve into in uh, this morning. But basically I want to focus in on the fact that, first of all, God has determined ahead of time to enter into a loving relationship with us. And that loving relationship that he enters into is known as foreknowledge. He foreknew that I, it's like he was sitting here, I am going to enter into a relationship with Bob. And it wasn't just like foreseeing that, it was like he is also actively bringing that about. That relationship is going to be established uh, according to his purpose. He is bringing it, he is causing that to happen, that relationship. And being predestined means that there is a determined end to his purpose, to that work. It's like, I am going to enter into this relationship for this reason. And this reason that God is bringing us into relationship is in order for us to be conformed to the image of his son. That is an aim for which God is directing his work towards us. The good that he is establishing in us. The, this, the, um, the will that the Spirit is, is praying for us that in the end, that we will be conformed to the image of his son. It's not unlike when you're part of the family, as we're described as sons and daughters of of God, as depicted in these verses. It says that we are the sons of God, that we are children of God. And not unlike children bear qualities about their parents, so too God wants us as a family to bear a resemblance to the firstborn to Jesus Christ. He wants us to look like his son and to take in all those qualities about, about him. Now, we, he, dis, he used the word um, glory earlier. Glory in a couple of, of contexts. That, the, that what the suffering that we've been going through is not compared, can't be compared to the glory that will be revealed. That Creation is waiting for the glory of the children to come about. Well, when we think of the word glory, I think we think mostly of like a brilliance, something that is um, splendid, something that is so bright and spectacular, it's kind of like there's this natural inclination to be drawn toward it. Well, the best definition that I came across that I think suits our purposes for this morning. The idea of what glory is can be described as 
all that is most excellent in his divine nature. All that is most excellent in his divine nature. Not that we become gods. Not that we become uh, little deities running around, that we're omniscient, that we're omnipresent. No, it's like everything that's about his character, those things that reflect Jesus Christ at his best, is the way that God is trying to shape us and conform us to. So when you think about being conformed to an image, one of the ways that I, I had considered about this is not unlike a, sculpt, a sculptor who is creating uh, a, a bust of someone. And usually there is like a model that is being referenced in order to create this bust. And if someone was going to do a, a, a sculpture of myself, well, then I would be sitting here and the sculptor would be over there and he would be using me as a reference. But what's going on in these verses is, is, is that we are on the pedestal being shaped and formed with the clay and all the molding. And what God is doing is working on that. But his reference, as he looks over the shoulder, is, oh, I'm using my son as the reference point. And all the qualities that he sees in his son, he's applying to this sculpture here. And what, and what sculptors do, too, is when they have like a clay model that they're working on, they work, may work on it for a few days, and then in order to keep the clay wet, they have to put a cover over it in order to keep it from that. So in a way, you can kind of see that as like we're sitting on a pedestal with a cloth over our heads because we can't finally see, okay, what do I look like? What, do I, what am I, what's going on? There's something that is preventing us from seeing fully what's being realized. But yet at the end times, that cover is going to be taken off. And when that revealing happens, that is when we are going to be displaying the glory and the nature of Jesus Christ. That is who we are being modeled after. That is the glory that we are going to be sharing in, and that is going to be the glory that is going to be shining in and through us at that time. So what is it that Paul wants us to know about the image of God? He wants us to know that the suffering that we are experiencing is longstanding. It is deep and it is, it is disheartening, but that there is going to be a hope for change. And that this change is going to be brought about according to God's purposes. This will happen. That is the grounding of our hope. This will happen because God will bring it about. It will mean not only the restoration of creation, but it will also mean that there is a redemption of our physical bodies and that we will be sharing a sacred glory with Jesus Christ also. So that's the information. What is our response? How are we supposed to respond to that? Well, Paul in these verses kind of assumed a couple of things. Paul kind of assumed that creation has this eager longing and that we also have this eager longing to have this happen. And I think that there is an element of where we have experienced that. As we go through suffering, we want it to end. We want it to be over. It's like, when will this finally come to a resolution? There's an eager longing. But there's a longing that is hopeful, that is looking ahead. And I, and, and, um, I think what would be a great, or what is a great summary statement for this, is uh, the verses that I read at the beginning of the service, which is 1 John chapter 3. And so if you want to turn there, that's on page uh, 1022. 1 John 3, 2 through 3, who gives a great summary as to these verses. And you may be asking yourself, well, why didn't Brian just read these verses? Because it's short and sweet and it tells pretty much everything you need to know about it. 
Well, I think that otherwise there's no comparison that these verses have that Paul sets up in terms of what is counteracting our state of suffering. But in 1 John chapter 3, verses 2 and 3, it says this, Beloved, we are God's children now. There's the affirmation that Paul has already created. We are God's children now in this present time. And what we will be has not yet appeared. And there is what also Paul had spoken about. Who hopes for what he sees? We haven't seen yet what is to come. We haven't seen it fully. But we know that when he appears, when Jesus comes, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. So here is an outworking for us as a response that can be developed in our own lives. That this is essentially saying that these, ver- this, these last words in verse 3, it says, if you have this hope, if you have this hope of the changes that are to come, then purify yourself as he is pure. There's one of the characteristics about Jesus Christ that that God is aiming for us to bring to completion, that there will be a purity about our lives. But we can agree with that now, during this time. We can say, "I I am purifying my life. I am being obedient to God, not because I have to, not because there's these rules. That is a part of it. But it's also like, I'm being this way because this is who Jesus is. This is part of the nature of who Jesus is represented as through, through his word. I'm bringing about my life in alignment with that. And I am agreeing that as I look ahead in my life, that this is what God is finally going to accomplish in my life in totalitarian way. God will bring about his purposes. We can be agreeing with that in, our, in the way that we live our lives and exemplify Jesus Christ here on earth. And we kind of think of our own lives or we, we talked a lot about in our, um, in our gospel community groups about uh, testimony and our story and that kind of thing. And what is the story that we have to tell people as we encounter them or if they ask about our lives and why are we a Christian in that? And I sometimes believe more so that it's like, well, how did I become a Christian? What was, I, what was my life before Jesus and how was I saved and that kind of thing? And for many of us, that is a story that is, is very profound and that God has rescued us, or many people, from a life of despair and brought them into salvation. My life has been kind of average in a sense. I mean, I grew up in the church and that kind of thing. But what I am going through that everybody is going through, which, which Paul has explained, is that all of creation is suffering. So I am suffering. What is the testimony that I have about how I handle my suffering? What is the way that in my agreement with where Uh, I'm trying to display the quality of Jesus Christ is his glory in part showing through my life. That will come through. Hopefully that will be an effective witness also in in a way that we can testify to others that uh, what is is Jesus Christ, what he means to us, who he is, and especially in the aspect of the lives that we go through where there's times of suffering and deep sorrow, what is that, that we hope for? Why do we hope for it? What is it that we bring to the table that we can describe to other people about how they can face suffering as a way in comparison. It's like, well, this is how I handle my life. So may we live our lives so that a part of the glory of Christ shines through us and for others to be drawn into that glory. So what I thought would be a fun way to kind of 
end this time, how much time was we have here? Okay, we have a little time. Um, was um, just to do a fun exercise. This is very um, non-stressful or anything like that. All right, but uh, I just wanted to kind of digress a little bit into this idea about uh, Jesus being depicted in art and the different ways that Jesus has been portrayed by artists over the years. And what happened at the turn of the millennium in 1999, there was a, um, there was a, uh, a magazine uh, called the National Catholic Reporter who did a call out to artists around the world or wherever it was within their sphere of influence saying, we want you to submit a picture of who you think the Jesus of the new millennium is supposed to look like. What do you think Jesus for the new millennium should look like? And they got over like 1,000 or 1,200 different submissions. and I'm sorry, about 1,600 submissions. And from that, they whittled it down to ten, top 10, top 10 pictures that they felt, okay, this is, these are the images that we feel uh, we need to look at. Um, and they chose from these the top winner as to which one was the one for the new millennium. Who is Jesus for the new millennium? And they accepted not only just straightforward pictures, pictures of people, but also abstract ways of thinking about Jesus. You, know, you don't have to portray him, but maybe portray something about him that you recognize as one of his attributes or something like that. So I'm going to pass these out and give you a chance to look at them and give you a nice and let you, let you look at those and give me your opinion as to which one do you think they chose as the Jesus for 2000. These were the top ten. And what reason do you think was given? 